This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 127 with guest Jenny Blake. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey, ass kickers, welcome to an all new episode of the podcast. I'm so excited that you're here and thank you so very much for your patience over the last several weeks as I've been re-airing some archived episodes. And this week we have an all new one with my old friend, Jenny Blake. I can't wait to give you that episode. I want to say real quick that this episode is really, I had Jenny on because she had a book come out, which it's her second book. And it's about career change and things like that. But even if you're like, oh, no, don't need it because I'm not in a career change or anything like that. Stick around because we kind of turn a corner and start talking about some deeper stuff. And I definitely want to have Jenny on. She's just such an old soul who's so wise. And I just adore her and just can't wait for you to listen to what we have in store here. But before we do that, just one quick announcement. If you heard me talk last week about the masterclass that I have coming up, We don't start the masterclass until January, but just for podcast listeners, I am offering 10 spots only at a special super $200 discount for the masterclass and an extended payment plan. I know some of you have been waiting, haven't taught a class in a long time, have one coming up in January. But again, there's several of those spots that have already been taken. We just have a handful left. So if you are sure that you want one of those spots, head on over to kickassmasterclass.com forward slash podcast. Make sure you go to forward slash podcast because that's where you'll find the secret page that will have the special discount and extended payment plan. And you can read all about it. It's an eight week online course. I'm not going to take up too much of your time here telling you all of the details. It's basically my signature program teaches you everything you need to know. That's all I'm going to say about that. So again, head on over to kickassmasterclass.com forward slash podcast. And before we get into the interview, let me tell you a little bit about Jenny. Jenny Blake is an author, career and business strategist and international speaker who helps people organize their brain, move beyond burnout and build sustainable dynamic careers they love. Jenny is the author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters Is Your Next One and Life After College, which is based on her blog of the same name. Today you can find her at jennyblake.me where she explores systems at the intersection of mind, body and business. Subscribe to the Pivot podcast and follow her on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. And without further ado, here is Jenny. (laughs) Hi, Jenny. Thanks for being here. Hi, Andrea. Thanks for having me. I am so glad to have you on the podcast and I'm so excited for you for Pivot to come out. And here's the thing. We don't talk a lot about career over here on the podcast. We talk a lot. Well, we talk about a lot of personal development stuff in general, but career is a major, 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 major thing in people's lives. And I know you say this in your book too, and people change careers sometimes several times in their life. So it's important to talk about it. And I love on the back cover, 
of Pivot, the very last line on the little, you know, description of the book, it says, if change is the only constant, let's get better at it. So yes, I love that. It's my favorite line. So just let's start from the very, very beginning. What inspired you to write this book? I did not feel very resilient to change in my life. And for me, career, it just provides, you know, some people say the word career is dead. So I get that even just hearing the word is a little bit like, meh, I'm I think career implies already. like a long, <laughs> like for your whole life. <laughs> There's something outdated about the phrase, but we don't have a better one to convey the overall container that your work and creative life fits into. <laughs> and so I'll just acknowledge that. But for me, what was happening was I kept feeling like I was hitting these, I didn't have the language for it at the time, pivot points. And each one felt like a crisis. And we coined, you know, we as a society coined the term quarter life crisis in 2007. And then there's midlife crisis. And I felt like every two years, I was bumping up against this plateau and felt extremely disoriented, didn't know what to do. Who am I? What's next? Where do I go from here? How do I figure this out? Spinning, spinning. And I came to feel like there must be something wrong with me. The fact that I'm going through what feels like a quarter life crisis every two years, I'm either destined to be unhappy for the rest of my life and in my career, or this phenomenon, I'm not alone. And it's increasing for other people too. And that actually, we're all going to have to ask and answer what's next more often. And sure enough, as I started doing research for the book and just talking to people casually, the latter proved to be true. And so that line that you read became my motto for the book, which is that, well, shit, you know, Mm -hmm. if this is the new normal in our careers, which it didn't used to be even 20 years ago, then we have got to get better at it because it's too stressful to take it personally every time. And, and then be spinning. And for me, I'd been working at Google and I had some pivots in there and I was at a startup prior to that, but it wasn't until I went into self-employment and I've been self-employed now five and a half years and I was halfway in and almost had to fold my business. That's where I said, like, I can't afford to not know how to answer this question anymore or Mm. my business is going to collapse. Yeah, because I read the book and what I love about it, there's a lot of things I love about it, but it's sort of like a step-by-step guide to changing careers and like, not even just that, but it's like the whole process leading up to it. Because I think what tends to happen, especially now, and just to clarify, this is not just for like entrepreneur type people, right? Right. And it's not even, a lot of people think it means massive career change. Mm -hmm. Pivot, I wanted to just put a method to asking what's next. And so even to map your 2017 pivot, even if you didn't change careers or even your current job role or container, you could still look at what's working? What can I double down on? You know, what does success look like a year from now and kind of follow the process? Yeah, exactly. You said it much better than I did maybe because you wrote the book, but, <laughs> but what I, only because I've had to read the book 20 times, 20 times to, right. at least, but I think like what happens is people decide to either change careers or make their career better or, or make these pivots and they don't know what to do. So they kind of like either copy what other people are doing or ask advice of people that they think are successful and have done it well when a lot of times like we don't really know what's going on. (laughs) So I love how authentic you are. And so which brings me to my next question is, can you share a little bit more about your background and pivots and what they would look like? Sure. Yeah. I studying political science at UCLA, doing research for one of my professors and she got asked to help start a company. And so I moved home as the first employee. I was managing our Google AdWords accounts and then hit a pivot point there, hit a plateau. I finished school. I later went back to get my degree, but moved over to Google doing AdWords product training. And I knew I wanted to be a author and speaker someday. 
But quickly at Google, after about two years, I trained over a thousand people those first two years, I hit a plateau and I felt like I don't want to talk about how to place analytics tracking code for the rest of my career. And that's when I went to start coach training at CTI in 2008. And who did I meet? Andrea Owen. Andrea Owen. (laughs) Highlight of my life. That was a long time ago. So that was an example of pivoting internally because when I did CTI, there was no career development team. But as soon as one was formed, I was well positioned for it. And then I left Google in 2011 when my first book was coming out and that was called Life After College. And once again, almost as soon as the book was coming out, I felt like this is great. I'm so proud of what I created. I was... 27 at the time. And I just felt like when I look ahead to the future, I don't want to be talking about life after college forever and ever. So how do I not bite the hand that's feeding me and yet still move in a new direction? And that's kind of that real crisis point that I described a little earlier. And so that's when I, you know, my business account got down to zero. And I just said, if I want to pay the rent in two weeks, I have to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of, in frustration said, there has to be a better way and started putting a method to when I looked back at the changes I just described, they all had something in common, which was leveraging something that was already working. And the biggest mistake that I made in my pivot and the one that I see other pivoters make is focusing on what they don't know, what they don't have, what they don't want, and also what's out there. Like you described, kind of that compare and despair mode of what everyone else is doing and what I should be doing. I fell into that trap of like what online marketers are doing. And it wasn't until I started to double down on what was working for me, the clients I already had, the book, the speaking, that by the end of the year, I tripled my income and for the first time earned six figures and have since. And so that's how Pivot came to be, was that understanding that a pivot is not a problem. There's not something wrong with you. It's actually often a product of our success and that the best way to make changes is through small experiments that build on something that's already within us. The answer is not outside of you. It's already present in something that you're already doing or already good at. Got it. Okay. Yes. That clarified a little bit. And so I would love for you to go into a little bit more depth if you don't mind. So so if someone's listening and they might still be a little bit confused and how would you define a career pivot? Because I love that you mentioned it's not necessarily, so can you give us some examples? I think is what I'm trying to ask you. (laughs) So someone listening, I get a lot of people listening who are in their jobs who, I mean, it might not necessarily be like soul sucking, but they're not happy. And they're like, I want to do something else, but what, what's next? The analogy I use is a basketball player. Mm-hmm. So when they, when a basketball player stops dribbling, they have one foot planted. The other pivot foot can scan for opportunity. And then they pass the ball around the court. That's the third stage, piloting. And then eventually you have enough information to make a shot. And that's what I call launch. So it's mm-hmm. four stages. And so for anybody listening, I'll just kind of very quickly throw out some prompts that you can do for each stage. So plant. What's already working? What am I already good at? What do I enjoy the most? Even if it's only 10% of your current job. When do you feel the most in the zone? What do people most often come to you with for advice on? And what does success look like a year from now? How do you want to feel? What does your ideal average day look like? 
This is that basketball player, that plant foot that is grounded and rooted. When I describe the mistake of looking too far outside of ourselves, it's as if we're running around the basketball court like a crazy person. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. when you're grounded in your strengths and what success looks like, then you can scan for people, skills, and projects that are compelling and based on what you already have got going for you. So people... Who do I admire? Who can I talk to? Who can I learn from from afar? Like on a podcast like this one, who do I want to connect with? Who are my friend tours that I can brainstorm with and create mutual support? And then projects based on what you figured out in your plant stage, what small projects might you be able to tackle? And that takes us to the third pilot. It's all about small experiments. Take the pressure off of having to know the answer to your pivot up front. None of us do. Yes. I just launched mm-hmm. the book and I have no clue what's next. I mean, I, <laughs> I do what I don't. Like I have all these pilots going, these different income streams, but I don't really know which one is going to most take off. Mm -hmm. So the key about piloting and to get concrete, if you're in a job, a full-time job, what kind of project could you work on within the company that's just 10% of your time? And often it's tacked on, at least it was at Google, kind of like a 110% project because you're going out of your way. Or if you have a side hustle idea or you have some creative outlet that is latent within you, how can you work on that for just one hour a week? And just take the pressure off of this all or nothing mindset. And by doing those small, a good career pilot should test three things. Do I enjoy this area? Can I become an expert at it? And is there room to expand? I call them the three E's. Mm -hmm. And so again, if you take the pressure off to know up front and you just line up one or two pilots, then they will naturally start to inform you about where you have the most energy and excitement. I love that. Okay. And so I think And this is just, you know, the Jenny Blake personality is like, this book is a lot about taking action. And, but here's the thing, you guys, is I don't want people listening to be like, oh my God, that, you know, like looking at climbing Mount Everest on the very first day. So that's the other thing that I love about it. It's like a lot of really little steps in order to kind of test the waters. And it's kind of like, not that I drink anymore, but it's like wine sampling, like wine tasting. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, What a great analogy. Is this going to work? Do I like this one? Wait a minute. Let's go to this other location. Like. Right. Exactly. It's so it's not that scary. Cause I think again, like when people think about these career moves and, and it's just, I make up that people just sort of like throw their hands up and they're like, well, it's just too hard. You know, like I've been in this industry for 15 years and, or, or it's what I got my college degree in and I might as well just stay in it. And I hear you on that. Like sometimes it's a, when you have a dream of totally switching careers, it can be really, really scary. I have a friend who is, I'm going to send her this book actually, and I'm not going to name her, but she has been in one industry for a while. And, you know, it's to the point where, I mean, these are her skills that she's been doing for decades. And she thought about getting her real estate license and then decided that wasn't for her. I think she actually went and did it. I think she actually went and got her license. So now she's thinking about being a flight attendant. So it's like, she's not really happy with the industry that she's doing, but she's just kind of like grasping at straws, if you will. And I think there might be a lot of people in that situation. So I love that this book gives you like small incremental action steps instead of just like, go run out and get your real estate license. (laughs) Right. And there's no doubt that all her industry experience will apply to whatever she does next. Mm -hmm. I have so much fun when I ask 
even Uber drivers. What were you doing before you were driving Uber? And a lot of, especially in the southern states in the U.S., a lot of Uber drivers are retired. They're mm. like more grandmas driving Uber, as I call them. Like truly, they're grandmas than in New York, where you have more young men who are maybe immigrants. Not everybody, but that's generally the big difference. And I love asking, what did you do like in your previous career? And it often had something to do with people or with driving or with all kinds of stuff. So there was even a woman who worked at Google for nine years in finance operations. And she had this lifelong love of cooking that she had kind of was just lying quietly, you know, hadn't done anything with it. When she was ready to leave Google, she went back, moved home to Ireland, went to cookery school, started an events and catering business. And there's no doubt that the nine years of finance ops at Google directly helped Mm -hmm. in starting her own business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like being completely reborn in a whole nother body. You definitely take that stuff with you. You're still you, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And that those are clues. The real key is your life already contains the clues that you need. You already have the blueprint within you, whether it's things you liked as a kid, things you do in your volunteer work or for your kids. So the thing you said about not taking these massive steps is so critical because in the book, there's a diagram called the risk that we all have a comfort zone. And mm-hmm. if we stay there too long, goes a stagnation zone. The ideal range for change or any next steps is our stretch zone. It feels edgy and exciting. And if we try and pivot too sharply, it puts us in our panic zone. So if anything that Andrea and I are saying on this podcast, put you in your panic zone, the step is too big. Just cut it in half and cut it in half until it's in your stretch zone and just know that those will build and you'll start to create a momentum snowball from the stretch zone. But if anything you're contemplating has you in your panic zone, it's not there yet. It's not the right move yet. I love, I need to find that diagram because like when you're saying that, I was laughing to myself because I am either in the stagnant zone or the panic zone. Like (laughs) I like jump back and forth, like throughout the year. I think some people are like, everyone has a different risk threshold. And I think some people like to just catapult them almost right into the panic zone. And that's when they thrive. Like they just want to walk through the fire of life and dive in head first, if you will. And I kind of wrote this book for the rest of us who are a little more pragmatic. (laughs) We might have other responsibilities or we just aren't ready to go that I never um, said that that was wild. working for me, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I know. Whether or not it's you, it's just such an important point. It's like, this is not about doing 180s. Cause like, I so admire the people that are like, I put down a second mortgage on my house. I did everything and I had no sign. And I went mm-hmm. into $200,000 of debt and then my idea worked and took off. And I'm like, that's wonderful that you can stomach that, but I can't, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's yeah. It's definitely something that I've learned the hard way that doesn't really work. And no, I'm not the person that's going to get into $200,000 with a debt, but it just, I think that there are some people who just, have these creative ideas and like we get so excited and we just run with it and then sort of like think about it when we're two thirds of the way through like oh my god what did I get myself into and it's you've taken the Colby index before haven't you that personality test Mm, I'm not sure it'd be a really long time she's one of the Martha Beck circle of friends people and it's like this personality index where she you know you get categorized into these four different it's kind of like Myers-Briggs-ish anyway one of them is a quick start and the other one is there's another one that's like people who love to do research and that is not me that might be you I don't know yeah I'm familiar with so many like true colors is another one 
But I do like research. I love reading. I like big ideas. I like to give my brain two toys of like, here's a big hairy problem. Now solve it. You know, yeah. we'll put some order to this chaos. I that just want to pay brain. someone to tell me what the problem solving <laughs> thing is. That's yeah. I, and I love that how people are different. And so I'm glad that you yeah. wrote this book specifically for the people who, you know, aren't the going to second mortgage their house and which should be most people. But I wanted to kind of shift gears. And we talked briefly before we started the recording for this podcast. And, and we talked about the emotional side of pivoting, which I believe is not, you don't really talk too much about in the book, correct? Right. Yeah. I wanted to, we had a whole section called surf the void that we Mm -hmm. took out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one of the hardest parts about pivoting that I didn't even fully give enough credit to in the book because it only has struck me afterward, but pivoting often involves saying no to something. And a lot of times something pretty good Mm -hmm. on paper, but it's on paper. And so first of all, it's very difficult to try and say no to something that's generally fine or going well, Mm -hmm. or even great, according to everyone else, like for me working at Google. And then the other thing is, Post pivot, there's uh, what I'm only now coming to explore, which is this creative grief or one of the quotes in the book, all change involves loss. And it's like even getting married. Okay. This most wonderful day. Well, you're kind of grieving your single life Mm -hmm. in a way. And so these are the two parts of a pivot that are not so action oriented. It's both saying no to something that can be sometimes gut wrenching, ending a relationship, quitting a job. And then after pivoting, just the culmination and sort of the dissolving of an identity that you might have held for years and years. And then the empty space before the new project sets in. And there's almost Mm -hmm. no way to avoid that. If you're really going to feel your feelings, (laughs) it's going to be there. And the question is, how do you honor that as just as magical and full of life as when you're in hustle mode? Mm -hmm. So what do you do in those moments where, you know, maybe you're grieving your old identity or you're in that kind of limbo part of finishing a large creative project? Because I know that you... And I think it was like several years ago, you kind of changed your life and got really into practicing yoga and meditation and things like that. So I'm kind of leading the witness here, but (laughs) (laughs) what do you do in those moments? I mean, because especially speaking to a lot of people who probably like to take action. And I know a lot of my listeners, we are, we would rather think and do our way through things than be through things. So what do you have to say to that? I recorded an episode for my podcast, the Pivot Podcast, called Post-Launch Pivot Point and the Furry Rest Monster. Oh, I, I saw that because I subscribed to your I, podcast and I'm way behind yeah, on my podcast. Like I purposefully kept all my meditation and yoga and Pilates, kept it all going through the book launch. And still, no matter all the foresight, because I completely burnt out during my first book launch five years ago. And I was like, cool, I'm going to going to like avoid that somehow. (laughs) No matter, no matter, like no matter all the practices I kept, the furry rest monster came out of the couch and swallowed me whole. And I say furry because I picture him like the big blue monsters, Inc. Pixar monster. Like he's super friendly. You know, he just wants the best, but he kind of, I was glued to my couch horizontal for at least a week. So your question, what are my practices? Number one, I need about five times as much rest Mm -hmm. as I think I'm going to need. And as I think I should allow, And I think there was a part of me that did have the foresight because I had blocked off a week of my calendar with no meetings. And boy, did that furry rest monster put that to use. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I find that I am in a much more 
spiritual mode. So I've been lately meditating twice a day, journaling a lot more of a restorative tone to the yoga practices and just honoring my body's need and desire to be in that mode and trusting. And I will say I'm getting all kinds of downloads for another mm-hmm. book. So things are starting to spark again, but it doesn't necessarily feel good in the moment to just like get swallowed by the couch. We talked about this. What do you do when you have real world responsibilities? And so it's kind of just figuring out what's the minimum that needs to get done mm-hmm. to keep everything moving. How can I delegate? What can I drop? And then the permission, and I know you talk about this a lot, Andrea, but so much of it starts with the self-permission. I give you permission to rest. And then the self-trust, I will pop out of this when it's time, Mm -hmm. but not Mm -hmm. before it. Yes. That last thing that you just said. (laughs) I am high-fiving, fist-pumping over here. That's been sort of a theme in my world the past, I don't know, maybe six months or so when I've been talking a lot about self-trust. Because that's a new thing for me. Like it, maybe it was kind of coming around over the last few years, but I just didn't know what to name it. And part of it is like trusting that your body knows what to do and that your yeah. body's talking to you. <laughs> and How do our bodies not know better than we do? Like, honestly, our body is just the most intelligent mm-hmm. animal. Why is it that we ever discounted what our body would say to us? It's, like, I don't understand. The body has no agenda other than to be as healthy as possible. to take care of us. Right. I know. Yeah. And I went to college for exercise physiology. I am inherent. Like, I am fascinated with the human body, like how we are put together, how we work. But yet I had this complete disconnect that yeah. it actually like homeostasis is a thing. it's trying to take care of us. And it's like this emotional thing. I I don't know. I mean, I just, I can get all fired up about this, but I love that you said that for you, it's a practice of self-trust that you will come out of this and you'll be okay. Yeah. Because it's very scary when you're in it. Oh God, the sky is falling. Yeah. It is falling. It's on fire. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, speaking of Martha Beck, she has that line, rest until you feel like playing and play until you feel like resting. And it's an infinity loop. And she said for her play is work. And if work doesn't feel like play, don't be doing it. You know, Mm -hmm. we can all strive for that. (laughs) Just that it does ebb and flow. And yeah, for me, the self-trust too is look, like if we knew exactly what our next pivot should be, first of all, we would be bored. Second of all, we would be doing it. So when you're in state number three, which is that I don't know what it is and I am confused for me, self-trust also comes in there to say, I trust that I'm resourceful and I will figure this out. I can't rush the process. So for me in meditation, I learned this from Tosha Silver's amazing work of outrageous openness, but just, I turn this over to you source, spirit, divine, and please just show me the one next step. And that's kind of the goal of pivot as well. Just do the one next step because it's very hard to see much farther out. And you can just trust that you're getting the information that you need just as much as you need and always at the perfect time. And you don't need much more because each next step builds on the one before it. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. We'll have to link up to that in the show notes. Would that be possible for you to tell me where to find that? Okay. That was beautiful. And I know so many of you listening are like, probably like white knuckling the steering wheel if you're driving and like big eyes, like how could I possibly just surrender? And like, (laughs) like, no, I want to know what the next step is. I want to know if it's going to work out or not. And I want to know what time it's going to (laughs) happen. I've got stuff to do. (laughs) 
Right. Right. Or we give it a deadline. Like, okay, I'd like to have this figured out in a week, please. Okay. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Bye. (laughs) You know, and then can you delight in the slow unfolding? That was another post I wrote. It's sometimes that unfolding is so slow. Did you say slow unfolding? Slow. Yeah. It's usually twice as slow as I think we would want it. But there it goes. Yeah. And I it's love the whole then saying of like, nature doesn't rush a tree. Nature doesn't mm-hmm. rush a flower. Why do we rush ourselves and put these shoulds and expectations about what should be happening and when? Mm-hmm. Fear. But I mean, it's not the most helpful part of our fear. Oh, Hell yeah. All right. So kind of on that same topic, and I listened to your podcast episode. I can't remember the name of it, but we will link up to it in the show notes. But you were talking about your own journey with meditation, and I could totally relate to what you were saying about not making it a priority and et cetera. So can you talk to us about like what made you change? Because I know you are very like, well, I mean, at least I think that like, you know, you said you meditate twice a day. I can, I'm lucky if I meditate twice a month. So what made you change it into making meditation like a legit habit in your life? Yeah. Can't say no um, it's truly precipitated by falling apart. Right. <laughs> Just feeling like I was falling apart. And I know Andrew, like it's been so fun to follow each other and we've both kind of dance parallel to each other in these ways of just from the time we met in 2008. And now it's, gosh, like approaching 10 years later. Mm-hmm. And it just all hell was breaking loose in my life. And I call 2013 the apocalypse year. I could mm-hmm. not catch a break. I cried every single day, truly, I think every day of that year. And I was meditating daily. I was doing yoga. I was doing gratitude. Doing I, was journaling. I was doing all the things <laughs> and nothing was working. But I stuck with all those practices. I didn't numb out. I didn't drink that year. I didn't date anyone that year. I didn't hook up with anyone that year. Like, let's just say, like, I was, you know, really tried to keep a clean system. Mm -hmm. And so to our conversation about not rushing, that didn't guarantee shit, really. Like, it's still meant 365 days of this, like, utter sadness. But I worked through it, and it just needed to work itself out on me. And I kind of, deep down at my core, felt like, okay, this must be preparing me for something. This is an initiation of some kind, because it's just too brutal, like, if that's not what's going on. And then I came to realize that meditation, it's a cumulative practice. So it didn't happen overnight, but something shifted uh, like at the end of that year. And as I started working on pivot and something really shifted in me and I started to realize that meditation had, and this is the name of the podcast, had completely rewired my brain. Yes. And then only in hindsight could I see that for the first 31 years of my life, I was an anxious mess, essentially, like, Mm -hmm. you know, not my fault. I'm not trying to put myself down, but I can just describe the inner quality of my mind was very anxious, afraid, worried, people pleasing. It was torturous. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was hitting myself with a hammer in my mind, as you heard on the podcast for 31 years. And then now only on the other side, at first, I was like, when is the other shoe going to drop? Because why is my mind so quiet? Like, are you saying life can actually feel this baseline calm and joyful on a daily basis. That's what I remember from your podcast. And I'm like, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so now how I stick with it. And I know with kids and a family, it's a whole nother story. But for me, I always ask myself, do I have 10 minutes today? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to make an excuse that I don't have even that. And then two, I firmly believe it's the most important 10 minutes I can spend that day. So it has become something that I don't even want to miss because it helps me 
get more focused in my business, more strategic, more heart centered, more calm. You know, lately I've been haikus are dropping down into my brain. Oh from no, I love it. My soul or who knows what. And one of the ones I wrote recently is mind like water drop down into that place where all is quiet, serene. And that's always available to us. And I often feel like I have a beehive in my brain. And if I can drop, I just say to myself, mind like water, drop. And I imagine a very clear lake down kind of at my heart center. And so I was just like, oh, I'm in the beehive again. Mind like water, drop. And I go down and try and find that tranquil place that is within all of us always. We just forget that it's right there. Oh, like I said earlier, you are so wise, Jenny Blake. I love it. I love it. Well, it's just, again, it's like you were saying, it's been so great. And I don't want people listening to be like, you know, like Jenny Blake was born this way. (laughs) Hell no. I've I've known you for like, you know, it's been a while. And I think you and I, in the beginning for us, I think... The, maybe the reason that we became friends is because it was almost like looking in a mirror personality wise, you know, we're both, I can't speak for you, but like, I'm very type A and just a go-getter and ambitious. And I remember, remember when I told you, God, do you remember what story I'm going to tell? I think I do. No, I was recalling it the other day. So go ahead. Cause if you say I'm going to die right now. <laughs> what I think we were emailing. I don't even think we were on the phone or anything. And I, I don't even remember what was going on in your life, but I said, I, I called it out and I was like, Jenny, you seem like a house of cards. that's about to collapse at any moment. And so you were like, exactly thanks for I the slap in the say. face, bitch. <laughs> that's exactly what I thought you were going to say. That's so funny. I remember that. And the funny thing is that story came back to me the other day because while I was going through this like post book launch sort of creative grief, I happened to binge watch House of Cards. I had never seen a single episode. (laughs) And only at the end of it did I look back and go, oh, isn't that interesting? Like, what's the difference between a House of Cards collapsing versus, you know, sometimes I think in our life, we try and put structures that we think are going to keep us safe and secure. And it's a house of cards. And then other times, structures are quite helpful to create flow. Mm -hmm. And so I I just thought of that story that you just shared. And I was like, huh, you know, food for thought, like, what's the difference? And what creates a house of cards? And what creates like a more sturdy foundation? And so it's so funny that you tell that story. And I think that was like, gosh, that had to have been in like 2010. That was a while ago. So I think I just want to say just real quick that I don't think I've ever told you before. I think that probably a lot of that, maybe why I saw it and recognized it so easily because it was very parallel to my own life Mm. because there was stuff that I had not dealt with and, you know, which, you know, consequently I became sober and then kind of everything started to fall into place very messily. Is that a word? Mm. (laughs) But anyway, I just wanted to say I was with you too, sister. (laughs) Well, and isn't it interesting? It's so weird because we don't think we're building a house of cards, you know, like, but 2013, yeah, it was like each card collapsed with a bang, you know, but that was after you had made that comment. So now maybe people can see, oh, if I was a house of cards in 2010 and then again in 2013, like I couldn't understand. I was doing the best that I could. I couldn't understand. I mean, in 2013, the weird thing was too nothing on the outside was so bad. Like Mm -hmm. I couldn't point to any one thing and say, Oh my God, this is great trauma of my life. Not that I would want to, but I just even beat myself up all the more because I was like the house of cards is like my internal Mm. 
structure. I remember saying to myself, I'm too sensitive for my own life. Oh. Like I cannot handle to be in this body, this mind another day. It was like two thirds of the way through the year. And I just didn't know how to even live in my body with the intensity of inner whirlpool again with no drinking with no nothing doing all the things and that's when tosha silver's work came to me and i have to say my spiritual practice started then because i was like i give up and i've always been prior to that like pretty much atheist like rejected re- religion even as a kid and I, I didn't understand the difference between religion and spirituality mm-hmm. and it wasn't until then that i just said I surrender. I cannot do this on my own anymore. And I don't know what's out there. And I don't know how to call on something bigger than myself. I don't even care about being happy at this point. Just give me equanimity. Just bring me peace in my heart. And so you made the comment like, I wasn't born this way. No, like, I don't think any one of us doing this kind of work was born this way. Every a rare few kind of mm-hmm. are and then they share their gifts but the reason it's even on yours and my radar to talk about this is only because we have had to stare these demons in the face yeah and I just so appreciate your transparency that was what I was going to ask you like what do you think really changed in 2013 for you to be here in you know rounding mm-hmm. up 2016 and I think you named it it was just surrender and finding what spirituality looked like for Jenny that was enormous. And I still every day is turn things over pretty much the prayer is may this unfold for the highest good for all involved. So it's like any scenario in my life, I actually have stopped. I have a really weird relationship with the word want now, mm. because I don't even know that what I quote want is what's best. So I even surrender like I really probably too far in the other direction, but kind of like I don't know. I don't know when I should get this next book deal or whatever. Like, show me the way and may this unfold for the highest good for all involved, whether it's even a relationship. I'm dating someone now. Like a couple years ago, I got a wishy and I was like, I hope he's the one. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even have the one concept anymore. Now I'm like, I hope this unfolds for the highest good for all involved. Who is it for me to say? I hope he becomes this to me or I hope this lasts another year. I don't know. So that's been helpful. And then to kind of tie it back to some of the pivot stuff and how does this relate to everybody listening? I really do believe that our challenges are chosen perfectly for us. They are. So you can ask yourself, why is this happening to me right now at this exact time in this exact way? What am I meant to learn and do differently? And then as you you know, we don't choose what happens to us, but we can transform it. So your gift is in making it through and processing, of course, but then being able to share from that authentic, real, I've been through the trenches place. Mm -hmm. And I think we often reject our fear and insecurity and uncertainty and neuroses and all the things that we want to reject and say that are bad, when actually they truly, and it's like sounds so cliche as it's coming out of my mouth, but it truly is our biggest gifts. And our teachers. I think cliches exist for a reason because they <laughs> need to. I love cliches. I do. I do. And I, I love everything that you said. And I want to have you back on just so we can talk about this kind of stuff. <laughs> I love that. Yes. I yes. love your honesty. And I know that my audience appreciates it too. And the Tosha Silver link and Jenny's book and Jenny's podcast are all back at yourkickasslife.com forward slash 127 
for you to go back and click on that. And thank you so much for being here, Jenny. I am so grateful for this conversation. Thank you so much, Andrea, for having me. Me too. It's such an honor and joy and privilege. And I love the work that you're doing and your authenticity and the incredible community that you have built. And on that note, thank you so much, everybody who's here with us listening. Yay. You're very welcome. And of course, I'm going to have you back. And until next time, Ask Kickers, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 